Alrighty, alrighty. It's good to it's good to see you. Um, really good to be with you. If I've not met you, my name is Drava. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. We're going to be in First John chapter three, verses nineteen through twenty-four, page ten twenty-two in the Bibles in front of you. Um, this is I will give you a, a heads up. This is a pretty meaty text. Um, we didn't get through all of it in the last service. I'm going to do my best to to get through it. Um, but it's just loaded. It's just really good, but it's really thick, really dense. And so I'm going to pray. We always need God's grace to translate His word for us. Definitely need it today. And then we're just going to dive in. Let's pray together. Father, we um. Most of us probably have multiple copies of, of your word in our homes. We have them in our pockets with phones. Um, God, we just, they're just, your word's everywhere. And so being so commonplace, sometimes we can think it's common, and yet it's, it's, it's the grandest gift that you would give to us, that you would speak to us and you not leave us in silence. You would leave us to guess who we're supposed to be and, and how we're to live and how to relate to you and know you and what honors you and serves others. We don't have to create a God in our own image because you've revealed yourself to us in your word. So we ask as we come to your text, might you, might you use it to, to train us, to inform us, to shape us, but above all things, we ask that you would use it to direct our gaze towards King Jesus, that none of us would leave this place, uh, that all of us would leave this place more impressed with Jesus, all that he has done, especially in a text like this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. This is God's flawless and heart-calming word. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Feel free to grab a seat. We're going to walk through really kind of three movements in this text. And like I said, it's, it's really loaded. We're not going to be able to hit every single part, but there's kind of three movements. There's this promise, in the first verse of what it looks like to have a rested heart. And then it transitions to what it's like to have a restless heart. And then the text moves on and talks about having a renewed heart, that it can be re-rested again. So we go from having a rested heart, the promise and hope of being able to, to have a calm spirit, to what happens when it kind of goes sideways and how to have it be calmed again. And we start here with verse 19, which functions as a hinge verse. It's saying, by this we know. By this we know something. When it says this, what it's doing is the, the verse is pointing back and pointing forward. It's saying, by this, well, what's the this? We go up to verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So through practically loving other people in the name of Christ, we can know something. 
It's saying one of the ways that you can see if you belong to Jesus is by looking at the way you love others. I will tell you that's both really good news and that's also precarious. There's a very good thing that comes from that, but there's also some challenges, and we're going to hit both of those. Let me give you why it's good. This beautiful word called assurance. John was written, he was a pastor, he's probably 90 years old, he's writing to a community of Christians he loves, and he wants them to know that they actually know. If they are followers of Christ, he wants them to actually know. They don't have to wonder, what's going to happen when I die? How's God relating to me? What's, what's my posture before him? Who, who, who am I before him? He wants them to know something deeply in real ways. I love the way B.F. Westcott says it, and he connects this to loving others. He says, the fruit of love is confidence. So look at my life looking more like Christ, not perfectly, but in patterns and reflections, I can have confidence that I actually do know the truth. Robert Law says it like this, there are actual things we can point to, not things we have professed or felt or imagined or intended, but things that we have done. It's verse 18. Now, there's lots of things we can say. There's things that we can feel, and there's things that we have prayed, and there's things that we've intended, and there's all sorts of things, but there's also things we can point to, can give us a sense of like, I know that I know. I know that I know. Now that many of you maybe already picked up on this, what's tricky about it is that our confidence might get tethered to our performance, which is oftentimes not consistent. Some interesting responses to last week's sermon. If you were here, the, the, the general takeaway is that, that, that if Jesus loves us, we're going to love others, not perfectly, but we're going to love in tangible, practical ways, not just in word and talk, but in deed, in truth. It just means in real deeds. And the thing that most people responded to as I interacted with, and this was in my home, and this was in conversations with people in the church, was kind of this, this uh, uh, stream of conscious like list. I just started listing off of people in the church and just thinking of ways that they have loved in practical and tangible ways. And it was interesting because the response from some people was, that was so encouraging. It was just so encouraging to hear how people are loving others in light of Jesus loving them. And then someone else would be like, that was so massively convicting. Like, that, that made me so much hope that the change is possible. And someone says, like, that made me feel total despair. <laughs> Listen to the same sermon. Asked people this question this last week as well. Multiple people said, do you ever question if you're a Christian? Are there times where you, you say, yeah, I, I know I believe, but you're like, I don't know if I really believe. Some people are like, no, I, I, I don't. I know Jesus has saved me. I know I'm his. Other people are like, I do it all the time, Constantly. One person's like, I didn't question until you asked me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Behind this is a sort of like, okay, I read things like verse 18. If I'm Jesus, I'm going to love and practical acts. Do I do enough of those? Am I doing them consistently enough? Is the Christian life supposed to be one of constantly growing and looking more like Jesus? Is it okay to get derailed and kind of get back? Like, if I look at instances of my life, it sure doesn't seem like I really love others. And if I look at other instances, it seems like I might have sort of. I keep yelling at my kids. If I'm honest, there's a bunch of people I don't like. By this, we will know. Can I not know? You know, what do we do with this? How much love is enough love to give evidence that we're of the truth? How much is enough to give us a sense of assurance? And 1 John, throughout the letter, really does try to answer that. That's what we've been trying to do in this series. Um, we're going to come back to the challenge of performance in a minute, but I want us to, to, to see why it's, it's such a great offer that we don't want to miss of what we can get if we can look at this and buy this actually know that we know. We're going to camp out on assurance a little bit more. I'm going to define it and then apply it, and we could spend 
multiple sermons on this, but I'll try to move somewhat quickly. From the Gospel Coalition, and of course they have on assurance, they define it this way. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval and future acceptance by their Father. Let's just leave that up there for a sec. We'll go back to the other one. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval, the way God looks at us now, and our future acceptance. We're not worried about what's coming. Gospel Coalition goes on and unpacks and says this, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus not only wants to save and forgive his people, he wants them to know and experience their salvation and confidently delight in their forgiveness to the glory of God. He wants his kids to know they're his kids. He wants them to know that they've been brought into his family and they will never be thrown out. He doesn't want them to be worried. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I've followed the rules enough. I don't know if I've checked all the boxes. I don't, what, what's going to happen when I stand before God? Am I going to have to shrink back in fear? Or am I going to be welcomed as a son or a daughter? If we apply this, um, we haven't had babies in our house in a really, really long time. My, uh, my oldest daughter is singing. She's going off to college this next week, and so I'm going to try not to cry. Um, but she's, she's leaving. We haven't had babies in her house. But I still remember those stages of in the middle of the night, the fussing begins, the rolling around, the noise, the banging. And so you resist it as long as you can. You're sitting in the bed. I don't want to get up. And then you finally say, okay, I'm going to go. You go into the nursery, and you, you don't turn the light on. You try to keep it kind of subdued. You go over to the crib and you, you, you pat the back and you start to, to, to sing. You know, you, you try to calm and soothe them. And you realize they need to eat, so you pick them up and, you know, I bring my, my, my baby girl, I bring it over to my wife and my, my wife, you know, as a, this little baby's kind of fighting and bucking against and, and not settled down and then eventually they realize, okay, here's, here's, here's food and they start to, to eat and then after they eat, you change their diaper and, and then you're praying for them and singing and it, because you have a, like a godly moment where you're not angry, okay? So you're doing, this, you're doing this because you love them. You're not just holding them by their feet and, you know cleaning them up and throwing them back in like a trout. And so, so you, you have this moment, and then, then this glorious thing happens. As they're sat against your chest, kind of whimper a few times, kind of pull back, and then they just sigh, and they sleep, and they're calm. I love this text. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That reassure our hearts can be translated like this. Our hearts are at rest. Talking about our conscience, but our, but our mind is at ease. Our souls are settled. We're not fighting, we're not screaming, we're not crying. We're just receiving. Give you a very different illustration, a military Illustration came across this. Thought it was actually pretty insightful. Some of you maybe relate to this because you served in the military, but you're at boot camp, and well, you were getting worked over. You were learning to submit to authority. You were hiking like crazy. You were scrubbing things you didn't ever think needed to be cleaned with tools you didn't think existed. I mean, you were you were just you were all in, and you're sitting in your barracks, and your commanding officer comes in, and you are immediately arrow straight. 
you're scared and you're worried and you're nervous. How far are we going to have to hike? What are we going to have to carry? What are we going to have to fix? What are we going to have to do? And then you hear these two words, at ease. God wants that for his kids. Not high alert, constant worry, constant fear, constant scared. At ease. Our hearts can be at rest. Don't miss what's yours if you are in Christ. Where this text is pushing us, don't miss what's yours as you are in Christ in the midst of a chaotic world, in chaotic hearts, in chaotic situations. For some of us, uh, this situation isn't hard to imagine, but let's, your money is super tight, you're working a couple different jobs, you're tracking everything, you're trying to stretch as best as you can to make sure that you can, you can pay the bills. So you're doing everything you can, and on that rare occasion that you get to go out on a date with your spouse, you're still in the stage of your life where it's like, okay, I can order the taco, but I'm not sure I can afford the guacamole for the taco. Anyone relate to that one? I don't know if I can pay the guacamole upcharge on the taco. I remember those stages. I totally remember those stages. Katie and I, we're not in exactly that stage anymore of our lives, but so often I still live like we are. I'm still so worried there's not enough. I'm still so, you know, it's like, okay, kids, we can go out to dinner, but nobody order anything other than tap water. In Christ, you have everything. You have everything you need to stand before God, as this text will say. Everything has been provided for you in Christ to be made right. Our souls can rest. We can reassure our hearts with this. So I'll give you just maybe a summary statement in the sermon. A rested heart is a result of knowing the Redeemer's love. A rested heart comes not from doing more, but believing more in what Christ has done. Now, there is doing in Christianity for sure, and there's doing in this text, but the thrust of this text is not to get us to look at our performance and say, do more. So we'll see the one big command this text is going to give us in a few seconds is to believe. If all that's true, that rest in Christ is possible, why don't we always feel it? Now, for some of us, you, you are in a spot where it's like, I am. Praise God. Some people are not based upon their disposition, their personalities, the environments they've been in. They are constantly worried how God's going to handle them. And so maybe if you're in a spot where you're pretty rested, maybe some of this text will be used to help you help them. If you're in the spot where you're constantly anxious, I hope this help, text helps you. But why aren't we feeling calm if we have what we need in Christ. And I think part of the answer is that assurance here is tethered to how we perform, and that's both good news and bad news because our performance isn't always consistent. Here's the danger of performance. Um, I'll try to illustrate it like this. Um, some of us are stock market watchers. We, we like to watch what's happening in the stock market on a daily, I like to watch on a daily basis. I think it's kind of fun and curious. I'll look at the futures and projections and predictions and see what comes true. I don't understand any of it. I think it's all make-believe, but somehow it happens. And people put money in and it grows or it shrinks. And I just find it very curious to me. And so I like to watch it because I'm just curious. But I also watch it because we have some money invested. I want to see how's stuff going and, and are, can we actually afford something or, or not. Now, one of the dangers in watching it every single day, and almost every financial advisor would say that's a terrible idea, is that you will make really bad decisions when you're watching it go up and down constantly. It's like one day, it's like, Katie, oh, goodness, you know, I, I think we might be able to retire. The next day, it's like, if you go back to, to March of 2020 when the stock market tanked, it's like, we're never going to retire. It's never going to happen. And then there's been a recovery, and it's like, hey, honey, maybe we could buy a house in Maui. We can't. We'll never, it's not, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's just not. We might be able to visit there. But, but it's, it's like you're just watching it up and down, up and down based on its performance. Let me apply it to us as followers of Christ, if you're a Christian. 
Looking at your daily behavior performance as a marker of your state with Christ is a terrible, terrible predictor of where you're at. Don't be stock market Christians. What we want to do and what 1 John has taught us as we've looked at it, it's looking for patterns. Not just little one-off instances. By this, as the pattern of my life look like I love others in practical ways. Not mere instances. Now, part of the challenge is not just the danger of our performance. It's actually the complexity of a key word in this text. Verse 40, for whenever our heart condemns us. Both of those are helpful whenever we're feeling condemned. You're going about life. You're doing okay. And then you just get blindsided by this feeling of, I'm not right. Something is wrong. It could be that you did something. It could be that you feel guilty about something. It could be you have a guilty conscience. It could be that somebody called you out on something. But all of a sudden, you're just hit with this. I'm not right. The word condemns an interesting one. And I'm going to try to unpack it this way. The word condemned here, when I read this the first time, where I immediately went was Romans 8.1, which we'll quote here in a minute. That there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I said, okay, there's no condemnation. But what's interesting is the word that's translated condemned here in 1 John, it's a different word than what's in Romans 8.1. And it's only used three times in the Bible, two times in this chapter, and then one time in a, in a letter to the Galatians where one Christian rebuked another Christian rightfully for the way they were behaving. And so here's how I want to apply it, because as followers of Christ, we experience condemnation in two different ways, and we need to detect which one we're experiencing so we know what to do with it. First one is this, condemned. We'll just take it that way, condemned. The final verdict that you are guilty. It's how most of us understand the word condemned. But there's another way it can be translated, and that sometimes is at play in texts like this and oftentimes in our heart, and it's this, convicted. A sense that we've done something wrong which is real and true. So let's take both of them. Condemned, the final verdict of guilty. If you are feeling that as a follower of Christ, if you are feeling, I'm I'm aware uh, that I don't love how I want to love. I'm I'm aware that that I'm not kind to my friends the way I want to be kind. God will not accept me. Here's what we do if you're a follower of Christ. You Bible that emotion. Bible that emotion with God's truth of his endless grace. Let's go to like Romans 8.31. I think we have this text. I think we'll put this up. I think it's going to be, exceedingly helpful. We have uh, Romans 8.31. It's my fault with the slides. They were mixed everywhere because I like to make it hard for people to volunteer. Anyone want to sign up? (laughs) Romans 8.31. When you are feeling the sense of, will God accept me? And you are in Christ through faith in Christ. Take passages like this. And actually, if if you can read it, if you can see it, maybe we read this one together. What then shall we say? To these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. The stunning text to bring to bear on those times where we feel like God will not accept us. The reason we're not condemned is because Christ was already condemned. That's what it's saying. It says that God gave his son for us. We go back to 1 John 2. My little children, I write these things so you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
That when condemning accusations come, and I love this story, it's totally like Martin Luther has all these crazy stories. So he's a, a 500 years ago, a great theologian, great thinker, wrote a ton of hymns, wrote books, translated the Bible. He's got this story. He would have these visions. I don't know if this is true or not, but he had these visions. He had this vision where, where Satan came to him, and he's sitting there, he's got this scroll. And Satan, one after another, is, is reading Luther's sins, one after another. And Luther says, ah, I'm going to stop you right there. There's so much more. And across all of it is stamped the blood of Jesus. I'm not condemned. That's why we have things like, there's no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all is him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. It's a John Wesley hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain to him who death pursued. When we're feeling condemned as Christ followers, we are not looking at our performance to right us. We're looking at Christ's performance because he's the only one that loved practically and tangibly perfectly. And then he substituted himself for all who would trust in him. But we're not always just condemned. Sometimes we're convicted. What do we do with that? Because there is the right sense that not everything we do is right. I love how Ray Van Ness says it. There will also be times in which we will need to reassure our hearts before God, presumably because we are painfully aware of the deficiency of even our best love. So where do we take that? That's the rest of this text. Look at the rest of verse 20 and following. For whenever our heart condemns us, we're, we're convicted, we're, we're aware Something in our lives, listen to this next phrase, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God is greater. He's more merciful. He's more tender. He's more just. He's more powerful. He's more patient. He's more long-suffering. He's more faithful. He's more loving. He's more everything. He's greater. A greater God means we have a greater grace to deal with the guilt that we do experience. The, the, the way the message, a paraphrase of the Bible, translates this verse, it says it this way. It says, for God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. He knows. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. David Jackman says it like this. He says, it is easy to become so tense about our failures, to be so hard on ourselves for not doing better, and so miserable about our state that we lose the sunshine of God's love. This is a fantastic state. Now, parents, as parents, we want our kids to feel conviction. We want them to see times in their lives where they, they don't look like Jesus, because we want them to flourish, we want them to grow, we want them to love their God, we want them to love their neighbor, we want them to experience conviction, but we never want them to experience condemnation. We never want them to think that the, the things they've done might risk their place in our lives. We don't want them to be so bent out of shape and so turned into pretzels of moral performers that it would cloud over the love that we have for them. So what do we do with this? What do we do when the conviction comes in? Again, I would say Bible it. Just take the Bible and bring it to bear upon the times where you're feeling like, how could God love me with all that I've done? How do I know that I'm his? 
Some of it, it helps to, to read texts that talk about who we were prior to Christ getting a hold of us and God's still getting us. Things like Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read just a few of these. There's so many we could do. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And where the text goes, and say, but you wised up, and you started obeying, and you performed, and you began to love others. This is not what it says. Look what it says. God interrupts and says, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not, and it goes on in this glorious declaration. Because of his love, he pursued us in Christ that we might be condemned. So even when we have conviction, it wouldn't pull us towards condemnation, but it would just pull us more directly back towards Christ. Romans 5, 6 and following. Let's do a few verses. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it while we were sinners. How much more now that your sons and your daughters? Read a number of verses. I'll just do one more from Psalm 103. And this is the testimony of God's grace all throughout the Bible. His mercy and his tenderness and his fatherly care for wounded consciences who don't know if they have a seat at the table. In Christ, this is what you have. Psalm 103, verse 1 and following. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I'll give you a strategy. The psalmist here is commanding themselves to do something. They're not listening to themselves. They're preaching to themselves. Sometimes when our consciences are wounded, we're aware of our sin. We need to preach to ourselves. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So easy to forget him when we're feeling our sin. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that you're Youth is renewed like the eagle. Move over to, to, to verse 8 and following. The Lord. Where do, I, where, do I take, where do I take the conscience that just got pricked because I was so mean to my wife? Where do I, where do I take when I got angry at the person who cut me off? Where do I take when I, when, I, when I cut hours at work and I have an awareness that I stole from my boss? Where, where, where do I take these moments as, as a proclaiming Christ follower when I am not loving the way I want to? My neighbor, my God, where do I take it? To the God who's greater than our heart. The one who's merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That steadfast love means it's unbreakable. As far as the east is from the west, 
So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. God's greater than our heart. He's greater. He's got greater grace, greater mercy, greater forgiveness, greater tenderness, greater patience. And one of the things that that'll produce is a childlike confidence. Where this text goes, and this is some of the things that we see in the remaining verses are, are markers that come out when you know you're right with God, not because of how you obey, but because Christ obeyed and you throw your hope on Him. Some of the markers is clear conscience that produces a childlike confidence, and we see it in, a, in two different ways. One of them is a confidence before God, and then a confidence to pray. Behold, if our heart does not condemn us, verse 21 we have confidence before God. That really struck me this last week. Actually, really, more so than I thought it would. I don't know what it was that I either hadn't seen the, that verse or it, it was just where I was at and it hit me. Confidence before God. I think about it every week standing up here and, and being in front of people and, and not feeling confident or, or you know, if you, you got to go to a job interview, not feeling very confident or you're going on a blind date, not very confident, being very self-aware of how do I look, how am I acting, what am I, like there's a lot of places in our, in our lives where we don't have confidence. This is in confidence before God. Sometimes God has been so domesticated in our, he's very much been domesticated in our culture, so domesticated in my own thoughts, he's so imminent, he's so personal that I lose the transcendence of who he is and this verse just hit me, confidence before God. I'll do this thing. You're going to think this is super weird. It is weird. I'm not recommending it. Sometimes I'll pause and I'll try to stand still and I'll try to imagine the earth spinning. And then I'll try to imagine it soaring through space around the sun. Doing this, like, and I'm trying to like, it kind of makes you dizzy a little bit because I'm like, we're, we are flying right now. Like we are, you know, it's just go. And you know, someone who knows this stuff is like, no, we're not. Yes, we are. We're flying super fast. And that solar system's caught up with other ones and it's spinning around in a galaxy. And those galaxies are orbiting around galaxies. And there's trillions and trillions of, sp- of stars and quasars and quarks and black holes in this never-ending immensity called space. The Bible says the highest heavens cannot contain God. And you can stand with confidence before him not groveling. I think the right kind of holy fear, but not sheer terror, that is a stunning, stunning thing. Seeing about with Isaiah, one of God's prophets in Isaiah 6, there's this scene, this throne room scene where Isaiah is in the, the very inner parts of of the temple of God's manifest presence on earth. And there's these angelic beings that are singing to others, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he's, he's seen as this great king with a robe that fills the entire temple. And Isaiah just has the right response. He says, woe is me. For I'm an unclean man. I live amongst the unclean people. And my eyes have seen the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. He has this real and raw sense. In Christ, we get this confidence before God. The Bible says things like we can boldly approach his throne of grace. We can just come before him. That's why we have confidence to pray. It's confidence before God 
in, in, in verse 21 leads to confidence in prayer in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what we just ask. We just freely ask. And this verse has been misused in so many ways. And in some ways, it might feel like prayer is kind of a weird insertion into this text, but I actually think it's a perfect one because it's the place of such intimacy and communion with God. And one of the ways you get to test, do I, to what degree am I trusting Christ's perfection to make me right with God as my prayer life? How am I talking to God? Am I, am I, am I, am I always apologizing? And, oh, we want to confess. We want to ask for forgiveness. But can I just ask? Can I just talk? Do I have to barter with him? Do I have to make promises to him? Can I just ask and talk? I'll give you an example of this. This last week, we were, um, my family were over uh, at a friend's house whose parents were throwing her a birthday party. So we show up, and there's a little grandkid there about a year and a half uh, years old, and he's just wandering around the house like he owns the place. I just love watching little kids. They just have no self-awareness at all that this is not your house. Just could care less. Just walking around like he owns the place. And he would just look at his parents and say, tuck, 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 tuck. And so then we'd bring him a truck, and they'd hand him the truck. And then he, he would sit there and go, pish. You know, he's just kind of like almost signal, like, mm, bring it to me. He'd say, pish. And then all of a sudden, he's like a king with a mound of like goldfish crackers, like right in front of him. He, he, he just didn't care. He just asked. He wasn't like, I, I wonder what I'm, am I dressed okay? Is my posture all right? Am I saying the right words? Am I pronouncing it okay? Am I going to impress the people that I'm asking so that they might actually give me the thing that I'm requesting? He didn't care. He just asked. It's confidence not just to pray, but actually what this text is confidence in, in what to pray. It's interesting because there's this connection here between prayer and obedience. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So there's this sense in that our, our boldness to pray and our clarity to pray comes from actually living in accord with his commands and doing what pleases him. And that might feel kind of confusing, so I'll try to make it more confusing with the illustration. Um, my family and I, we were down at Boundary Bay Thursday night, or Friday night, the Friday night fish fry. So they're frying fish and cooking chips, and there's a band there, and so I'm up and I'm, I'm ordering drinks and the food for my family, my kids and my wife for at a table. And, and I come back to the table with our little menu, our little order number, and um, my wife goes, oh, they don't have my favorite thing. And I was like, oh, they don't have the curry mayonnaise anymore? And the kids were like, that's weird. How did you know what mom was talking about? I said, because I know her. When we pray, when we're keeping commands and we know what pleases God, guess what we're going to pray? Things that please him. Things that he wants. Things, things that you know he wants to say yes to. That's what this text is saying. It's not saying go pray whatever you want and God will give it to you. It's saying pray what God wants and God will give it to you. Give you one more. This, I cut this at the last service, but I'm going to try to do it because it's really important. I want to try to finish this part of the text. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. We talked a lot about loving others last week. We've talked about it um, in previous ones. Here's what I want to focus on, the first part of that command. Isn't it kind of God in the context of a text that's talking about assurance to say, here's the command, believe. Not, not first and foremost, do. doing happens, doing comes. But here's the command, believe. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in all he is and all that he's done. Throw all of your hope on that. One commentator says the, the word believe can, can also be translated to relax and relax into Jesus. Let him take all of your weight. Let him take all of your burdens. 
Let him take all of your cares. Trust him, he'll hold. He won't, he, won't, he won't fail. Bring all of your conviction. He's got greater grace than you can imagine. Bring all the condemning voices. His blood speaks a better word. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And where there's conviction, there's still love, not as, not as people outside of the family, but as sons and daughters learning to look more like Jesus. Just believe. A rested heart can be ours, and it's the result not of doing, but knowing Jesus' love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a text. We didn't even get to all of it. So grateful for your kindness to us that that saves us, but wants us to actually know that we are. So I pray for those in this room, if, if they have not, if, if, they, if they have turned Christianity to a series of checklists to do to make themselves right, that today would be very loud, that what makes them right is what Christ has done. There's those that are here that, that have never confessed their need for you. Maybe they didn't have regard for you, or maybe they thought they could earn their way to you, but they've never confessed their need for you. They've never, never said, I, I, I am condemned outside of Christ. The final verdict will be guilty. That they would confess their need today and they would throw themselves on Jesus. They would believe in the name of the Son of God. That they would believe in Jesus and what he has done. That it's his grace and his performance and his work that they need. For all those here that have done that, God, that today would be a time of renewal. That it would be a reminder that we can actually know, even in the deep and dark and painful and raw places that we sometimes find ourselves, that we are still loved in Christ. That you might settle our souls. You might bring rest to our conscience. And that Christ might be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen.